Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Jonah, Jonah chapter 4. I think it's page 775 in the church Bible, if you're using the Bible in front of you in the pew. And if you're using your iPhone, just scroll on the ESV app and you'll find it. Jonah chapter 4. Don't be tempted to look at Facebook or emails pretending to look at Jonah. I speak that of which I know. (laughs) Well, we're going to start our reading. This is, uh, I I think this is the last study in Jonah. I say I think because you never know what's going to happen, but uh, that's, that's the plan. Let's begin, let's begin reading at verse 10 of chapter 3, and then we'll read through to the end of chapter 4. When God saw what they, that is the people of Nineveh, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You may pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Well, Lord, will you please give us wisdom and insight as we read this story this morning? to understand that you're using this story to reach into our hearts, some of which are as hard as Jonah's. And we pray, Lord, that as you reach into our hearts, that we would see you more clearly, love you more dearly, 
as we go through our lives. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. Well, you wouldn't know that Jonah had had the experience of a lifetime. As a professional prophet, there would be nothing in the world like what had happened in Nineveh. He went in, he preached for a few days, and there is an entire city turning around, an entire city repenting, as it were. I don't know if that means absolutely every man, woman, and child, but certainly the majority of people, from the highest to the lowest, from the richest to the poorest, right through the city, were turning to God. And God relented of the disaster, we're told. The disaster he'd warned about did not take place. What an amazing thing. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God did something like that in Philadelphia and changed the whole moral tone of the city, transformed the spiritual life of the city. And here's Jonah, fresh from this successful crusade, and he's miserable as sin. Now, to be fair, we had a friend, or I had a friend who was on our staff in London, and whenever we got into conversation at a staff meeting and it went in a negative direction, he would always be the one that would pipe up with these words. Well, to be fair, we all knew what was coming, we used to rib him for it, but he always put the, you know, he'd put a positive spin in what was really negative. Usually he had an element of truth in what he was saying, and we get irritated. Well, to be fair about Jonah, let me just say something to be fair uh, about Jonah at this point. God had told him to go to Nineveh the first place. He didn't want to go. He went somewhere else. As you know, he got thrown into the water. He got wet. Then he got rescued in the water by a great fish who proceeded to spew him up onto the dry ground, and he got a second chance at serving. You see, there it was. I could have said all that in the first few minutes of the first sermon, and you wouldn't be on sermon number eight, but, but I didn't. So he spewed up into, onto dr- to dry ground. God comes to him a second time and says to him, go to Nineveh. This time he went. So to be fair, he had gone and he'd preached through the city. He'd been faithful in delivering the message to the people. They were an evil city on any reckoning. Archaeology demonstrates what an evil place Nineveh was. Uh, violent, corrupt, not safe. If you were a baby or a woman or a girl, you were not safe from being made a sacrifice to the, the, the gods of the city of Nineveh. So it was not a good place to go. And Jonah goes in there on his own, and he starts telling them, 40 days, and God is going to send judgment. And the amazing miracle is that the people believed God. That's the story so far. And the fact that they believed God is what has got Jonah's goat. Now, why is that? Well, let me fill you in a bit of larger background. The distinction between Israel and the nations goes to the core of what God was doing in the world at that period in the world's history. It starts with Abraham. He called God called Abraham to leave his place, or of the Chaldees, and to go to a place that the Lord would show him. And God promised Abraham that he would have a singular offspring, a singular male offspring, 
and that through this singular male offspring, all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So God called Abraham, and then God called Moses when the people, the descendants of Abraham were taken into slavery in Egypt. God called Moses. He brought them out of Egypt. He gave them His law. He gave them the land. He gave them a sacrificial system which pointed forward in time to the arrival of Abraham's singular seed who would be the Savior of the world. He gave them the firm assurance that when they offered sacrifices, He would forgive their sins. God's moral and ceremonial law were given to Israel to underscore the difference between Israel and the nations. Just as He has given us the good news of the gospel to distinguish the church from the world. Israel, the nations, the church, the world. Same difference. And when Abraham's singular offspring came, talking to a woman of Samaria, that is, a different nation from his own, he said, salvation is from the Jews. And that lady, that Samaritan woman, goes back to her village and tells them, I have found the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. In other words, the privileges given to Israel were never given to Israel for herself alone. The privileges given to the church of God were never given to the church of God to hoard for itself. They were given to Israel, for the nations, to the church, for the world. Because the Lord Christ is the Savior of the world. But there were people in Israel who didn't believe that. People in Israel who ignored the fact that they were called to be a light to the nations, and Jonah was one of those people. He is the patron saint of the Pharisees, people who know the truth, love the truth, but who keep the truth to themselves. People who are turned in, whether they're in the church or in Israel, turned in upon themselves. Do you know that one of the first things God had to knock out of His church in the book of Acts, you can read about this. He had to knock it out of their heads that they were just to keep it to themselves, that they had to include people they did not like, unclean Gentiles like most of us in this room this morning. And he knocked it out of their thoughts altogether. Jonah is in the Bible to underscore this fact that God is the God of the world and that God has come to bring salvation to the world. We'll see that as we progress this morning. So Jonah really is a pain in the neck, and he is a disobedient, recalcitrant, reluctant prophet of God. But how does God deal with him? That's, that's really what we want to know this morning. How does God deal with his people? Maybe you're one of them who is a bit cold-hearted or hard-hearted. You're recalcitrant, rebellious, perhaps, against what God's sent into your life, or whatever it may be. You're you're far away from God this morning. How does God deal with you? Well, He deals with you, I think, the way that He deals with Jonah here. He comes and He questions Jonah. And those three questions that He asks in this chapter highlight something in the very deep recesses of who God is. 
His grace, His providence or provision, and His compassion. Let's look at these things. The first question is in verse 4, and it points us to God's grace. Remember the background? Jonah is exceedingly angry, verse 1. He prays to God, verse 2. He reminds himself of what he knows about God, that God is a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and then tells God how angry he is that God should be himself, that God should be all of that, not just to him, Jonah, not just to his people, Israel, but that God should be like that to these evil people in Nineveh. That's a remarkable thing. And so the question, the Lord said to him, do you do well to be angry? Three words in the original Hebrew. Word number one, is it good? Word number two, to be angry. Word number three, for you. The whole emphasis is weighted on the Jonah for you. Are you in any position? You, particularly Jonah, are you in any position to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry? Here is a man who has been given great gifts from God, a man who has been chosen by God not only to be one of his people, but to be a prophet and to speak the word of God. Here is a man who has been endowed with enormous gifts, who when God tasks him to do a task, says absolutely not, goes in the opposite direction, gets a ticket for as far away as you can get from the place where God wants him to be. What has God done? Chased after him in a storm, rescued him through a fish, and then when in his disobedience he is saved nonetheless and spewed up onto dry ground, saved by the fish, God gives him a second chance to do the first thing that God had spoken to him to do. Here is a man who has been the recipient of the steadfast love, the grace and the slowness to anger of God. Do you see that? That's absolutely important that you see. This is where God is coming to him, and God is saying to him, Jonah, have you any right to be a- for you to be angry? Because I've shown myself to be gracious and full of steadfast love and slow to be angry. There's the question. So God comes to him with this question. What does he do? Well, he ups and quits. He gets up and he goes off stage left in a huff, peeved that the Lord should come and challenge him, annoyed that the Lord should speak to him in this way. He gives up his his mission to Nineveh. Off he goes and he builds himself a booth, a little shelter on the hillside, starts his own little movement, his own little separatist thing, a little church of Jonah outside the city walls of Nineveh. And he becomes a spectator. Look at verse 5. 
with me. Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. Now, what do you think's going through his head? I've given God a piece of my mind. I've told him that I'm just not pleased with what he's done to Nineveh. So now that I've told him, maybe God then would get back with the program and nuke the city. Is that all in his mind? I mean, what, what other conclusion can you take to see what would become of the city? Is this right? Jonah's saying, God's saying to Jonah, is it right that this is what you feel? Do you think it's right that I should judge these people when they've repented? Jonah had been called to identify with these people, but he refuses to do it. He sits with his perfect view of Nineveh to see the fire fall, and it's not the Pentecostal fire fall that he's waiting for. It's the judgment fire. Surely, says Martin Luther, a strange, peculiar kind of saint, to be angry because God is gracious to a Gentile city, grudgingly to deny her any share in God's love, to wish her only evil. First question highlights the grace of God and exposes the heart of Jonah. Second question is in verse 9. And that question points us to God's providence, or we might say God's provision. Before he asks it, God sets the scene. Let's look at the scene setting that's going on here. Now the Lord had appointed a plant, a gourd plant. Gourd is the, probably the word there. And made it come up over Jonah. Huge big leaves. It grows up. Huge big leaves that make it to be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Okay? He's hot and bothered. He's already angry. He's hot and bothered. He's even more angry because he's hot and bothered. And God is doing this. God is doing this to kind of cheer him up, isn't he? I don't know if this happened to you when you were, when you were small. When I was growing up, in the first five years of my life until my life as I knew it ended and my brother was born, during the first five years of my life, I was the exclusive object of doting adoration from my grandmother, my two aunts, and my mother. Unfortunately, not just their doting adoration, but also their corporate discipline. And when anything would go wrong, you know, I remember climbing a wall of the, the army barracks next door. I would climb walls. I found that I could do that, high walls. I've always thought that my alternative career, if I hadn't been a minister, would have been cat burglar. I would have been very good at that. Um, but seriously, back to the plot here. Uh, and I remember jumping off the wall and a big iron spike going into my leg. Things like that would happen from time to time as they happen to boys. And you would be miserable. One would be miserable. And, and, and all the attempts to kind of make you smile would not work. But they devised this thing. The word came to my mind this morning. I'd forgotten it entirely, and I was just thinking about Jonah's experience here, and it came right back. The Lord gave him his word this morning. They would come and they would play with my chin to try and make me smile. Didums, 
Didums do it. Didums okay. Didums. I'm going to tell you something. Didums worked every time. No matter how resolute I was in my huff or my anger or my pain or whatever it was, didums did it. <laughs> Elders don't even dare. That was all a setup for Martin Luther quotation, by the way. Martin Luther says, okay, that God is now beginning to play with Jonah as a mother might play with her child to cheer him up, to break the grip of his bad temper, to make him smile. Now you can see the point of the illustration, in case you didn't. So what does God do? He appoints a plant. Here is God's provision, God's providence. God who sends good or bad to His people in his, as His loving wisdom sees fit. Every joy or sorrow comes from above, from our loving Heavenly Father who governs the world for the welfare of His chosen children. This providence, this government of God extends to the whole of nature, including humanity, over sea and wind and storm, the monsters of the sea, over creeping things and worms, over heat and cold. All are governed by His will. All are His creatures and are His servants whom He uses to guide and shape the lives of His people. Believers, their training, their discipline, their teaching, their comfort, either to gladden their hearts or chasten them, but always with our eternal welfare in mind. This is the same word, this word appointed. God appointed a great fish. God appointed the gourd plant to spring up and give Jonah protection from the blazing sun. To save him from his discomfort, actually it's the same word as the word for evil in chapter 1. Nineveh is an evil place. And then when Jonah sees what God has done there, he is angry at the evil that God has done in Nineveh in saving them. And now he's feeling evil, discomfort from the blistering heat. And so God sends this plant to shade him. And for the very first time in this entire book, for the very first time in our acquaintance with Jonah, a smile cracks his face. Didums did it again. And I want you to notice the way in which the author matches the grammar of this verse with what we read earlier. Jonah was exceedingly angry. Verse 1, exceedingly angry. Now he is exceedingly glad. Exceedingly glad. He is as glad now as he was angry then. Because God has done what? God has done something for Jonah. And for a moment, life is the way it should be. Underneath the shade, watching the city, 
waiting for the fire to fall. And Jonah is pleased at last. Do you know there are times in life when God seems to spoil you, aren't there? When He seems to give you exactly what you wanted. He gives you what you wanted, and you think all's well with the world. It's great. This is the way it should be, isn't it? We come into our Christian lives, I think, and depending on how we're brought up, we may be brought up to expect that everything will work out. Uh, we're brought up, maybe, maybe you were brought up in a highly spiritualized background. It wasn't 10th, of course, but I mean, it's somewhere that's really spiritual, and, and, uh, and maybe the language of Zion was used all the time and so on, and you, came into, you, you grew up expecting that your Christian life would go on a certain kind of way. There would be no hiccups, no valleys, you know, just kind of a steady progression upwards and onwards, that kind of idea. Did you have that kind of thought? Well, Jonah's sitting there and he's thinking, this is the way it ought to be. He's exceedingly glad, happy. And you know, very often God does work gently with us. Paul talks about the kindness and then goes on to talk about the severity of the Lord. So after he's had a whole day enjoying the plant, what happens next? Same word. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. God appointed a searching east wind. So with the warm east wind, with the scorching sun, here we have the third and fourth uses of this word appointed in this book. He woke up that morning and he felt faint from the heat. He felt miserable. He felt half dead. His beloved plant all dried up and dead and the sun beating mercilessly down upon him with this strong east wind coming off the desert. What happens? He becomes angrier than ever Yes, that he might die. This is his default setting, by the way. He's a bit, th- a bit theatrical, I think, Jonah. He really does kind of go there right away. He, he wanted to die. It's better for me to die than to live. Even though it was very obvious that God was in it all. In fact, if you, if you look at these verses, you'll find a whole variety of names that are used for God that underline that he is Jehovah, the, the gracious covenant Lord. The almighty creator, in verse 7, he's the God, to stress that he is the one and the only God. In verse 8, he's the almighty creator and ruler of life and death that causes the plant to grow and the plant to die. He knows God is in it. He's a believer after all. He's a prophet in particular. God said to Jonah, do you well to, do, to be angry for the plant? Will your grumbling help you? God wants him to see that, it's as much, that he is as much in the worm and the wind as he was in the fish that rescued him and in the gird that shaded him. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And the question seems to add insult to injury. Did you notice his replies? We read it. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. What's God doing? God is using sarcasm here with a tinge of humor. God's saying to this man, Jonah, 
Jonah, do we think that maybe you're overreacting to the plant thing here? Like the plant? And you see how that exposes the pettiness in this man's heart. And sometimes God's Word exposes the pettiness in our hearts. We get angry with God, then with circumstances, and then there are minor irritations, and, then, and finally your shoelace breaks, and you completely lose the plot altogether. God exposes the pettiness in our hearts. How kindly and lovingly God deals with Jonah, who is now locked into self-interest and self-pity. John Newton was a great hymn writer. He had been a slave trader. God had gloriously converted him. He spent a lot of his later life working with William Wilberforce to bring an end to slavery, the slave trade in the British territories, and ultimately was successful, as you know, through Wilberforce's work. John Newton, as a a believer, wrote a hymn that was a kind of personal testimony. It begins by, by stating his, his prayer. Listen to these words. I ask the Lord, he writes, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. He's asking for spiritual growth. He's asking for, for a better prayer life, a depth to his understanding. And then he tells us how he hoped that that would happen. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once, he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. That was the way he wanted it worked out. Just press the button. This is what I want, Lord. I want to know you better. I want to know you more deeply. I want to have a better relationship with you, and I want it now. Press the button, Lord so that I've learned all the lessons and overcome all the tests, undergone all the temptations and trials, and am successful in the end. Just like me once, as a little boy standing in the railway station, watching the train roll in with my aunt, who'd been for 10 years on the mission field in Argentina, coming home. And about 200 people on the platform singing hymns to her as she arrived standing at the door. And at that moment, I thought, what a great thing it would be to be a returned missionary. As long as I don't have to go, but if we come back and get that kind of welcome, wouldn't that be great? Well, this is what he was thinking. He was thinking, Lord, this is what I want you to do. Do it now. Do it instantly. Make me the person you want me to be. But that wasn't the case. Listen to the rest of his poem. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. He let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid them low. You see the connection with Jonah, the shelter he'd built for himself? God had blasted the gird. God had blasted away from Jonah and from John Newton's life all the sources of comfort and joy in his life and had sent the worm and the wind 
as an answer to this man's prayer for spiritual faith, growth in faith and love. Newton concludes with these words, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? No. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free, to break your schemes of earthly joy, that you may find your all in me. There are times when the kindness of God to us doesn't somehow break through the barriers of our resistance. And there are times when God must show severity towards us to get our attention, blasting the, the fair designs we schemed, that we planned for, plotted for, aimed at, blasting away our gourds in order that He might be our all in all. Beloved, we can take God's gifts and enjoy them. We were thinking earlier in the service about the art salon and all those beautiful gifts of art that come to us. We can enjoy all of those things, but we must never make them the basis for our joy. If you took all the things we like and subtract them, would we still find our joy in Christ? Would we? Third question. And the final question is in verses 10 and 11, and it points to God's compassion. Jonah had been sorry to lose the plant, and the Lord said to him, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity that great city in which there are more 120,000 persons? The word there is the word Adam, which is the, the word meaning human being, people, people, human beings. People who do not know their right hand from their left. That's an idiom for spiritual and moral ignorance. They are spiritually and morally ignorant. They are unaware. That does not mean that they were not, that they were not culpable, but they were spiritually ignorant as well as spiritually culpable. And God knows the heart. God knows our frame. God remembers that we are dust. And evil though they were, nonetheless, God is willing to forgive them if they turn to Him. That's why he'd sent Jonah there in the first place, to preach the gospel to them. He's saying to Jonah, consider this for a moment. There are 120,000 human beings, men, women, and children, in that city. Are you saying to me I shouldn't love them? Care for them? And many cattle even. You weren't worried about a plant. I love everything that I've made. Everything that I've made. That plant, you, those people, and the cattle. I love everything that I have made. Isn't that an amazing thought? 
The mention of cattle is not so much a sentimental vision of animal rights, by the way. The Texans will be glad about that. Uh, but but the, it, is, it is a reality that when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them to eat of every green plant. At the time of Noah, after the flood, he gave permission for them to eat meat. But in God's compassion, he extends his compassion to all of the animal kingdom as well as to this planet and this universe so that in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, dust shall be the serpent's food, a little child will play with the lion. The real point is, here is a devastating critique of Jonah's spiritual condition. He does not see the world as God sees the, wor the world. He is only happy with what is pleasing to him. He does not have a heart for God's world. When it relates to people he does not like or he is afraid of. Back in the 1960s, Chuck Smith, when he was planting the very first Calvary Chapel, was seeing a work of God among young people. This was happening all over the world. I know because I was around then and watched it. And uh, our, that generation, the 60s, gave us all our, the rock music. That was our great contribution to the world. And the worst kind of clothes, at least they really became worse in the 70s. It was the next generation. They really did no taste whatsoever. But, but in California, we didn't happen in Glasgow, let me tell you, but in California, people started walking around in their bare feet. Uh, and that was not kosher, shall we say. And shops and restaurants would put signs outside saying, bare feet, not welcome. Chuck Smith tells the story of, of what a spiritual revolution took place in their church when they decided to put a sign outside the church, bare feet, welcome. There are people around us in our city that you don't like, perhaps. People whose choices in life you don't like. People whose choices in life are against the law of God, so therefore that's why you don't like them. There's your reason. We don't like them because they blatantly disrespect God's law. And we don't like them anyway. But we don't like them especially because they disrespect God's law. Or, or there are people around us, we feel threatened by them. Their values, their view of life, everything else is totally against what we cherish. And that's hard. And I'm not here talking about us as Americans. I'm talking about us as Christians. We're in the same position as Jonah Jonah has these people, the Assyrians, are a threat to Israel's existence. And they're very, very evil people. Men, women, and children, especially women and children, were in danger of death in the city, being used as a sacrificial offering to their gods. It wasn't a good place to be. Jonah resents them. And the challenge of Jonah to the church of Jesus Christ is there are some people we don't really want God to bring to us. We could do without them bringing the baggage of their problems with them. 
we could do without them bringing the mixed-up relationships that they have with them. We'd rather they found Christ somewhere else. I know we don't say that, of course. Jonah had to learn. This twisted, twisted soul, Jonah, had to learn from the way in which God handled him to stop justifying himself and resenting God's work in others and submit to the sovereign will of God. Now, I have a question. Do you think Jonah learned that lesson? Do you? He wrote this book. You do know that. That's why it's in the Bible. Jonah was a prophet. You had to be a prophet to get your book in the Bible. There are things about Jonah we only know because he's told us, frankly, openly, what was on his mind, what was on his heart. And the way he finishes the book tends to make me feel that Jonah wanted God to have the last word. Enough of Jonah. Let God have the last word. And when Jesus was talking to the people of his day, he says to the people of his day, someone greater than Jonah is here. I mean, he could have said greater than David. But he said, greater than Jonah. Why do you say that? Because he wants you to go back and read the story. And he wants you to learn this, that when you come to see with clarity how your prejudices or your sins are great within your heart, and you let it out to God, and perhaps as Jonah's done to us, that God forgives and God forgets. Jesus does not say anything about Jonah's hard-hearted schemes, but he does say this, that the people of Nineveh will rise up on the last day to bring to bear witness of judgment against the cities of Galilee because they repented under Jonah and those cities of Galilee did not repent under Jesus. A greater than Jonah is here. And because God forgives and forgets, because He puts our sins in the depths of the sea of His own forgetfulness, we're reminded that God is the Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is the free offer of the gospel. There is the great commission of heaven that we should take the good news we know with us to everybody without distinction and offer it freely to them. And then when they start coming to our churches, welcome them with open arms and help them as they move, make the transition from 
being without God to being in the family of God. Help them make the transition by loving them to death the way God has loved us to the death of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please uh, open our eyes to see and our hearts to embrace the joy of your salvation, your providence, and your compassion. May we be marked by that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' strong name, amen.